Bright Metal Audio presents The Blood Miles by Andrew Moody, read by the author. Volume 1, Chapter 7 Something woke me up. The air had changed. The sharp edge of its cold had gone, replaced by a sweet smell of burning gum leaves and another smell that seemed like, no definitely was, cooking. It was a warm smell, tomato and basil with, someone was in the hut. The realisation blasted all sleep from my brain and electrified my senses in one frozen second. Now I could hear someone moving around. There was a creak from one of the chairs, a quiet sound of metal on metal. Outside, the wind still rose and fell. The sound of thunder had faded to almost nothing. I opened my eyes and discovered that I was still blind. Had whoever it was seen me? Was it possible that I just looked like a pile of blankets? Trying to move as little as possible, I slid a hand out from under the covers and found the knife on the edge of the mattress where I had left it. That won't help you, said a voice. It was a man's voice. Not young, not old. Calm and confident. It came from the far end of the room near the stove. I suddenly felt every follicle on my arms and the back of my neck. But there was no time for fear. I had to project confidence. With the knife still in my hands, I raised myself on my elbow and pretended to look in the direction of the voice. Hey, sorry if I've taken your spot, I said, trying to sound like this was an everyday sort of event. I thought you were... Yes, said the voice, but not any more. What are you doing here? Oh, I've been... I'm from Spillin. Someone told me there was a treatment station out this way. There's no treatment here. If you try to get through the mountains this way, you'll die. Yeah, I was afraid that was the way it was. Thanks for the tip. I guess I'll get my stuff and go. Like I said, really sorry to bother you. I sat up and tried to disentangle myself from the blankets. More difficult because I couldn't see what I was doing and because the tip of the knife kept catching in them. Finally, I extracted my legs and swung them down. I set my feet wide apart, partly to increase my mobility in case the man attacked me and partly in the hope that they might encounter my boots and the road book which I knew I had left on the floor. "'You'll die if you travel in that condition, too,' said the man. "'Oh, yeah, maybe,' I said, feeling unsure of what he meant. Was he talking about my lack of warm clothes, my lack of food? "'Still got to make the best of it.' I tried to shuffle my feet a little wider, still trying to locate my possessions. "'Where are you going to go?' "'Back home to Spillin, I guess.' I was originally headed for a place called Crux, but I don't know how to get there from here. I have marked it on this map for you. Oh, thanks. I don't want to trouble you any further than I have, though, I said. Your boots and the book are in front of you, not to the sides. Yeah, of course, I said, leaning forward to find them. Still a bit bleary. There was a pause before he spoke. If I was planning to attack you, I could have done it by now. I know you're blind. I tried to suppress the shudder that went through me and bent down to fumble with my laces. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I I copped a bit of a flash off that cube thing when I was following you before. I mean, I can still see, but there are a few black spots. Hopefully it'll come good after. It won't come good. The radiation from that relay paralyzes exposed, tox-affected cells so they die off within 12 hours. You won't recover the sight you've lost. I suddenly felt a cold wave wash over me. How did he know that? And if he knew all about the cube, then why had he run like that when the humming started? 
Did you read the sign? said the man. I did, but when I saw you by the pool, I wanted to find out where you were going. I am not the man you saw by the pool, but the sign is well before the pool. I guess so, I said. I thought maybe because it was an old sign it would be okay. Your first problem was thinking you could find your way through via the pipeline. That was never going to work. What do you ha- I started to ask. Was this just a lucky guess? Or was I following a predictable path that others had made before? But before I could finish asking my question, I heard the man clear his throat and spit. There was a strangely hollow splash. Something clacked onto the table. Had he just spat into a cup? You can stay here for another night, said the man. There is food in the pan here, and there are rations and a carry sack in the safe that you can take with you. I'll write the combination on the map. There's enough wood in the shed to keep you warm till you go. Thank you, I said, suspecting some sort of trick. But I don't have anything to pay you. I didn't ask you to pay me. You asked for help, and I'm giving it. Is there anything else you'd like to ask me before I go? I I don't think so, I said. But what did he mean about me asking for help? Who was this man? I heard him stand up from the chair and walk toward the door. Wait, I said. I lied about my eyes because I was worried you would attack me, but I can't really see anything. Would it... Would it be okay if you opened the safe for me? The steps halted. No, he said. But I've left something for you in the cup here on the table. If you rub it into your eyes, it will undo the damage, as long as you use it within the twelve hours. Thanks. It, didn't you... It's it's not your spit, is it? That's right. Oh, I, I think I'd prefer to use my own. That won't work. You need something that will change those cells before they die. My spit will do it, but don't wait too long. As I said, 12 hours from exposure. Okay, I said. Hey, if you don't mind me asking, where did you come from? But there was no answer. Whoever it had been was gone. Outside, the thunder returned, rolling around the margins of the sky. I gathered one of the blankets around myself and went to close the door before shuffling back to the table. It was just like the man had said. I could feel the radiant heat of the stove on my face. When my fingers swept the table, they found a folded wad of paper. They also brushed up against a china cup, which I slid away from myself, and a spoon, which I brought closer. I stood up and found the pan on the stovetop. I still didn't know if I could trust him, but my hunger was so intense. The smell of the cheese and meat overwhelmed me. In a second, the spoon was in my hand, and then it was in the pan, and then it was in my mouth. It was some kind of ravioli in a creamy sauce. I don't know whether it was literally the best food I had ever eaten, but that's how it seemed right then. I ate half the pan standing, with the stove slowly roasting my face and body. As my hunger subsided, my thoughts turned to the cup sitting on the table. What was I going to do about that? Did the man really expect me to believe that he had magical spit that could cure my eyes? Did he really think I would use it? It was a repulsive thought. What if the man had the tox? Or, even if the agent was right and the tox didn't work like that, what about all the other infections he might have? It was ridiculous. And it didn't make sense. If what he had said was true, then the cells that had been damaged were the ones right inside my eyeballs, in the part where the image projected. How could anything, let alone spit, heal those? On the other hand, what did I have to lose? If I couldn't get my vision back, I was already as good as dead. I'd end up walking off a cliff or being cooked by savages, or I'd simply starve. 
What difference would it make then if I had a few germs in my eyes? If it didn't work, I could wash my face in the pool. And hadn't the man already done so much to help me? Given me this food, made this fire, left me a map, allowed me to stay, not killed me. Suddenly I knew what I was going to do. Maybe the man was simply tox-crazed. Maybe my eyes would get better on their own. But I was going to try it. The stakes were so high, and I didn't even know how many hours it had been since I saw the flash. For all I knew, my time was about to run out. Before I could change my mind, I reached out and grabbed the cup, pressed the lip of the vessel into my cheek and scooped some of the liquid into my eye. I did the same on the other side, trying not to retch as I blinked the spittle in with my eyelids. I wiped it off my cheeks with the back of my sleeve and sat there feeling disgusted and stupid. But it was done. If I was a fool, I was a fool. The man could have his joke. At least I still had the food and the fire. Nothing happened. I felt more stupid. Then again, perhaps it was a hopeful sign. If the spit was a trick, then maybe the 12 hours claim was too. I decided to go and wash my face. I was about a third of the way to the stream when my eyes began to itch. At first I thought I would ignore it. It felt like the sort of thing that would get worse the more you rubbed it, the sort of irritation that needs to be washed away rather than rubbed. But the urge became irresistible. I stopped and ground the heels of my hands into my eyes. The relief was immediate, and that wasn't all. When I took my hands away, it seemed as if there was a lighter smudge in the black. I turned back toward the hut and saw the door as a bleary yellow smear. I rubbed again and retraced my steps. By the time I had made it back inside, I was seeing gradations of light and shadow everywhere. As I opened the stove door and blinked, the orange glow resolved into flames. Quickly now, I grabbed the folded map off the table and held it up near my face. At first I couldn't read it, but when I stood on a chair near the ceiling light, I could just make out a string of numbers written in the margin. Three, seven, twelve, one, twelve. Between my bleary eyes and cold fingers, it took a long time for me to get the door open. Yet finally, just when I was beginning to fear that it was a lie, I heard a click and the heavy door swung free. It was full of good things. Shelves with plastic storage tubs containing packets of tea, freeze-dried coffee, sugar and powdered milk. There were cardboard boxes crammed with silver packets that had things like lamb curry, chicken cacciatore and beef stroganoff stenciled on their shrink-wrapped skins. Down the bottom, under the shelves, I found a new-smelling canvas bag with a flint, canteen, sleeping roll, aluminium mug and spoon. There was also a small billy, and sticking out of it, a bunch of fresh celery. At first I just swore and stared at everything, not able to take it in. When I had recovered my wits, I pulled it all out and laid it on the table and stared at it again. Finally I made myself a mug of coffee with sugar and took it out to the front step of the hut. Above the walls of the valley, the morning sun was pouring blood-orange light across the storm clouds over the summit. Higher up, bands of fiery cirrus flamed the last stars shining in a blue that was deeper than any colour I'd ever seen before. I just sat there looking up at it all. Everything seemed sharper and more intense. Not just more vivid than it had been before Vera's injections, but ever. Was it just getting above the dust of the plains, or had my eyes always been dull? I made another coffee and washed up. Then I took another look around the hut, paying particular attention to the map and the tatty book from the top of the safe. It turned out to be a guest ledger, a sort of handwritten record of all those who had passed through before me. 
The early entries were stockmen, leaving point-form records of names, dates and herd sizes. Then came hikers listing the details of their journeys or the weather, or going on about the views. After that there was a long gap in time, followed by some short entries from refugees who wouldn't give their full names or destinations, but spoke of cold, starvation, and the burial of children and friends. Another long break followed, and then new records. These came from work teams of central loyalists, who spoke about taking delivery of equipment and beginning screening tests. There was an excited account from a group who spoke of retreating before a sav attack and seeing the cannibals scythed down like hay by the relay. Then there was a more sombre report of a funeral held for team members who had gone into the zone after injecting expired trace screen. At last, there were just isolated entries, usually years apart, written by individuals heading to Central or just heading east. Some seemed unaware of the danger up the valley. Others described elaborate precautions to get past the cube. One group described a process of fasting and intense washing. Another man was carrying a large mirror. The final entry was from one Laban Tombs. Trying the East Passage this afternoon. I'm going to cover myself with zinc cream and drag my gear behind me. Hopefully the cube won't see me as a threat. Wish me luck. Good luck, I said. I closed the book and turned my attention to the map. It was a large-scale topographic chart with thin lines that bunched together in the steep places and drifted apart in the flatter regions. There was a shaded section labelled Horeb Pass Restricted Zone, and someone had circled a little black square labelled Shelter Hut in the middle of it. A short distance away, another square appeared with the words Stage 1 Detox Relay. From the circle, someone had drawn a series of arrows that led back down the mountain to another road that ran southwards along the side of the range. Right near the bottom corner of the map, a thread-like track branched away from this road back to the mountains, and the same pen that had marked the circle and arrows had drawn a thicker arrow and written Crux via Wicket Gap next to it. In the margin nearby, there was another note. Keep that knife in your boot. You'll need it. I spent the rest of the day resting, eating, and sitting in the sun. The next morning, I gathered the things the man had left for me, chose a selection of ration packets, and began my march back down the mountain. <laughs>